This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, I'm Tatum Duruk, and today we're talking about queer sex after a cancer diagnosis. Because here at Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show, we want you to have a sex life that you feel great about. And a lot of the information out there is for heterosexual couples, often older than 70 that have been in long-term relationships. So we're going to remedy that. And so to remedy that, I've got two amazing guests here with me today. I've got Stuart O'Callaghan, and they've been on the show before. They run Live Through This, a cancer support group for LGBTQI plus community. And Lizzie Scott, who is a radiotherapy specialist who has great recommendations for sex toys. I can't wait to get to that bit. Um, and is also working to make radiotherapy more queer inclusive. So welcome back, Stuart. Hi, yeah. It's always lovely to chat with you. Um, what was going on in your sex life when you were diagnosed with cancer? So at that time, I was living in Germany and exploring a new city in all manners of the word. Mm -hmm. So it was a really nice way to sort of, yeah, be going out and sort of going on dates, you know, see, just seeing where things went with people, but, uh, which I think Berlin of all cities encourages. I, I was probably on the more shy side of things than the city expects, if I'm honest, but still getting out there. And how did you feel after you were diagnosed? It, it was a big old shift because you go from having this kind of freedom and this hedonism to sort of just focus on seeking pleasure in people and then going into this very sort of inward focus thing about me, my health, what I was capable of. And I think there is also a really big shift that I had to reconcile, which was feeling like a burden or that somehow because my life had become complicated, it was too complicated to sort of connect to other people. Mm. Um, and, and I think when you don't have like a long-term partner that helps you sort of through those early stages, it, you can get really stuck in that point for a while. Even when I was starting to see people, I remember even one person telling me that they weren't sure if they could date me because that I might die on them. So, you know, so, so you very early kind of get this real sensitivity to be like, how much can I share basically with this person and weighing that up between how long do I think this person I've just met will be in my life for? Is it yeah. a very quick thing and I can be very private and I don't have to share much or do I want to be more open? And I think over the years I've really played with both ends of that spectrum and, and I think still struggling to figure it out. Yeah, oh, relationships are not easy, are they? <laughs> we will get more into those. But that idea about what to share, like that also comes up with you know, what to share with our medical team and what we feel free to share. And I know that you and Lizzie um, have done a piece of work together, actually. So, um, Lizzie, you're a radiotherapy specialist. Can you tell me a little bit about what got you into radiotherapy and why you wanted to work to, you know, do a new intake form that made everyone feel more welcome in the space? Sure. So it was a new way of actually um, asking pregnancy status of radiotherapy patients in, in, an, in an inclusive way, um, which meant that we actually asked all patients aged 12 to 55 when they attended for a radiation exposure, what sex they were registered at birth. And the form actually also mentions intersex as well. So if someone wants to discuss that with us, um in private as well um 
And then from that question, we would then ask anyone who answered female and or intersex um, if there was any possibility that they might be pregnant. And the idea was to make sure that our radiographers were actually um, being inclusive in their language and communication with all patients, not making assumptions about how people identify and what genitalia they have. Um, and just making sure that um, people sort of knew how to have those conversations with patients and that anyone who attended the department was included. Um, so it actually was a piece of work that we did with the Society of Radiographers. Stuart um, did a really great job of sort of giving us the patient point of view as a trans person and um, giving that voice from trans, non-binary and intersex communities. So we actually did produce the forms. We ran pilot studies in three different departments that were also diagnostic as well as therapeutic. And um, so that's sort of plain x-ray CT as well as actually giving um, radiotherapy. Um, but Stuart also took those forms and um, took them to different trans groups, uh, non-binary intersex groups. We also had uh, an intersex um, campaigner, Valentino Fichetti, who um, I think had a little bit more media presence recently with all the the amazing intersex inclusive pride flag um, they've made being displayed on Regent Street in London. Um, and they did a really great job of helping us make that guideline um, more inclusive as well. Um, and it really was um, a great project that meant that we sort of produced this really quite detailed, comprehensive guidance that sort of shows radiographers how to make their practice generally inclusive, how to approach a really sensitive question um, about pregnancy, which can be quite upsetting for a lot of people, no matter what their gender yeah. is. Um, and sort of just make health professionals more aware that this is something we need to be inclusive about. And um, it has been pretty well received on the whole. Um, and it's hopefully a lot of other departments are starting to um, pick up on it and use the forms and the guidance we produce to improve their practice as well. That's brilliant. And because that's really the beginning of, the, I mean, although we're talking about sex today, right? And, you know, especially sex after cancer, because it, it it's that fusion of sort of medical and personal. Um, and it's tricky for anybody to talk about sex. But when, you, when you're not represented on a form or when you feel excluded, um, like I, I went for, you know, I went for a talk about <laughs> once I came out of like my immediate chemo haze, I was like, okay, what information is there out there? And yeah, it was like, oh, this isn't for me, you know? And that idea that even on the form that you see an acknowledgement of yourself means that that's the beginning of the conversation, that's the beginning of the communication. And can radiotherapy affect somebody's sex life? Oh, 100%. Um, so anyone who's having their pelvis irradiated, um, they will find that their sex life will be affected just because whatever genitalia and organs you have, um, radiation will cause effects. So... I mainly focus on talking to people who have fulvas and vaginas about um, the side effects from radiotherapy, which can, with vaginas, increase stenosis, which when the vagina shortens and shrinks, it produces less natural lubricant. Um, your orgasm can change. There's not actually enough research about that, but there has recently been a paper 
um, in basically suggesting that the dose that the clitoris receives probably does mean that your orgasm will change if it's been irradiated. Um, and we know that, that that can cause issues longer term. So what we do is give people with vaginas um, dilators to actually um, sort of form a physiotherapy really to help um, retain the vagina's natural shape, to actually exercise those muscles. And they're basically plastic tubes that you insert inside. And we give them lubricant to do that with and advice around that. Um, but as I'm sure we're going to end up touching on, it's not really um, perhaps sufficient information to give these mm -hmm. patients. And um, with patients who have a penis, um, they're going to find probably that they're going to have problems with erection. Um, both any anyone with any set of genitalia organs will likely have some issues with bowel and bladder frequency, potentially incontinence, which obviously can impact on your sex life. Yeah. And as I think Stuart has experienced themselves, fatigue is just a major um, issue in terms of just libido and sex drive and, and obviously self-image and just going through the psychological impact of having um, any kind of cancer treatment. Yeah, and um, I... I see really Stuart nodding away there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what other um ways Stuart can you does you know having a diagnosis and treatment affect um affect sex really and drive and sexual wellness sexual health. Yeah, I mean all those things especially Lizzie touched on so many key ones and I, and I think there's other things like you know if cancer and its related treatments changes your body so it changes your body image in that way as well so if you end up with a stoma if you end up having a breast removed so there, there, there's a lot of things around that I think it's also as well about I've, I've definitely supported a lot of patients who have had cancers in sort of intimate areas and then they find it really hard to shift from thinking about that part of their body in a clinical way back into a sexual way yeah because they've had to sort of think about it almost as this problem area for a while and also have a lot of people kind of look at them in ways that don't feel very intimate either so you mm. know as, as part of that examination and checkups and and there have been people who have just sort of contacted me as well, usually asking for advice too. They want to know how safe and how soon they can return to anal sex. Yeah. And there was one patient that I supported who came through our peer support network and he had had anal cancer. So sort of was dealing with that idea of how do I erogenize this zone again, but also how soon can I return to anal sex? And we, from a charity perspective, tried to give him, you know, the answers that are there, but we have to be professional. And he ended up sort of trying to find additional support and ended ended up contacting another patient in America. And that was the first time he got to have a real conversation where he got to speak frankly about these things. So uh, I think what you were saying earlier, Tatum, about the importance of even intake forms being mm -hmm. inclusive, it sort of sets an environment where someone's like, okay, you understand who I am, respect who I am, and that I can have those conversations because there's definitely, you know, the environment itself is, you know, pretty clinical. There's a lot of uh, power hierarchies that sort of unspoken. There's this idea of how can I get my clinician to talk about something that, let's be honest, general society isn't really comfortable talking about. No, nobody and, uh, is really. And they're often quite uncomfortable. Um, absolutely. And, and that conversation is super important because it's about 
it's about outcome mapping and sort of projecting together about what changes can be expected. And that can help someone understand the changes that are going to happen to their body as they're happening and how to recover afterwards. Whereas if you're promised that it's all going to be fine, you might come out the other side and be upset when you realize there's quite a few differences that can happen. Yeah. And one of the examples that when we were chatting before that you gave me that I thought was really interesting was that how, you know, how your preference, you experience pleasure during sex can actually change what kind of help that you can get. So can you tell me a little bit about um, the penile implants? Yeah, so um, so this is something that's really interesting. So when we think about um, erectile dysfunction, which comes quite a lot with prostate cancers, either due to radiotherapy or surgical removal of the prostate, things like that. And there are some modernizations of surgery where there's they leave a little bit of the prostate there if it's safe to do so, that can kind of help. But usually when it gets discussed and you read the information, it's very straight and it's very about take an erection-related pill or like a penile suppository, something like this that will help you. But generally those kind of erections you get or by pumping won't ever be strong enough for anal sex because anal sex, you need a bit of a firmer erection, right? So if you go looking online and you find some information, what you can actually find is there's very active forums and groups of gay men who have the penile implant instead, and that gives them the firm erection that they need, but also it allows them to almost erogenize that part of the body in an entirely new way. So yes, they may have lost some sensitivity, but they actually gain effectively an erection that they can keep as firm as they want for as long as they want. And they can go into these spaces and it's really empowering to read them, actually be proud of it and be proud about going into these sort of sex positive environments and being proud about how many people they can have sex with and and the attention that it brings so so it's this thing of understanding that sometimes the standard therapy may not work for you in the kind of sex you're having so Mm. being able to be honest about this stuff especially if you can get aligned with a really fantastic nurse doctor or psychosexual therapist and then really again mapping in that idea of what does good sex look like to me and what do I want to aim for exactly because somebody else else might be like you know what I'd pick sensation every day of the week you know what I mean rather than length of time and so actually that does really matter like when you think of you know what kind of outcomes you can have and so Lizzie I mean I know there is sexual health but like there is my personal experience is a little bit like okay um you've had cancer, like, get on with it, you know, like, um, you know, all my doctors all knew that, like, I couldn't even have a smear test, Um, you know, that I, um, I mean, to me, I felt I was sexually dysfunctional. I know other people might not look at it that way and they might not have sex the way I was used to having sex. But for me, for like my kind of scope of things, I felt incredibly broken, but I felt that that was kind of, you know, just one of those things really and that I just needed to get on with it. It, From a a clinical standpoint, is sex really part of a quality of life that is supposed to be looked at? Like, you know... A hundred percent. I think the problem is we don't always practice it. So in research, patient... I'm not even just research... um, it's probably not taught so well in medical schools and in other health professional degrees, but certainly um, health professionals are aware that it's incredibly important to people's quality of life. Um, A lot more studies are done now 
with what are called patient reported outcomes where questions about people's sex lives will actually be recorded in relation to um, their cancer treatment and the outcome of their cancer treatment long-term side effects that sort of thing so it's definitely recognized as being important to someone's quality of life um i think unfortunately at the moment it's just very um clinician dependent on one how much information you're given when you're consented to a certain treatment and um, to what the level of aftercare and advice is and um, that you receive in relation to sex once you've had treatment and that shouldn't be the case especially in terms of if you're really getting informed consent in relation to treatments, you should have the whole picture on what exactly that treatment's going to do to you. Um, I think it's definitely getting better. I noticed that more of our clinicians are writing those things, um, such as stenosis on the consent forms for our patients who are having things like um, cervical radiotherapy or rectal radiotherapy, our vaginas. And um, they're certainly writing down erectile dysfunction a lot more for our prostate patients who are having radiotherapy and they're definitely discussing it with them. Um, but I think there's still a lot of um, reluctance there. I think that health professionals don't receive enough specific training on how to communicate about people's sexual health. Um, and I think that the signposting um, is very poor. And it's incredibly difficult um, as a radiographer, you sort of have to be very proactive in wanting to go out there and learn about these things and find out what's available for patients. And um, and it's sort of like for myself personally, it's been um, something that I felt quite clumsy about and I felt that I really had to try and read about myself to work out what's the best way of discussing this with people. Um, what can we offer people? the radiotherapy and what kinds of things are available what can be offered because I think that some of it right is that like when you're thinking about like should I even bring this up I mean I think what I'd love people listening to this to take away is that actually it is really important (laughs) and that Yeah. yeah like your doctor may not know but it's still worth bringing it up because it is still like a, a factor and there might be something that can be done rather than maybe not getting that information at all. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to hear like if, you know, as a result of radiotherapy, like is, you know, what what can be put in place? Who would someone ask to go see or? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, for example, um, pelvic radiotherapy, um, certainly in my department, and I would hope in most departments in the UK, you would be given some kind of specific information if you had a vagina that would usually involve um, dilators and education on how to use those. Um, and sort of as part of that information, um, there's probably information about pelvic floor exercises, general pelvic um, health as well. And usually as part of that conversation, it's do you have your contact your clinical nurse specialist? They are trained in the T. You can discuss them in future they will follow you up over the next sort of course of years and they should be checking with you and asking about those. But they're also the people who are capable of making those referrals to psychosexual um, therapists who can give you more specialist advice if it's actually something you're struggling with. From a queer point of view, there is definitely 
a massive lack of information and that's where charities like they've lived through this that Stuart runs are really filling that gap and it, it, it shouldn't necessarily be the case but um and and I certainly still advocate talking to the clinician about your sex life if you're queer it's just I can understand how difficult that can be for people because mm-hmm. fear of discrimination um it's really difficult when you have to explain to someone who's a cishet person how you have sex yeah it's just this assumption that what other sexes are than penis and vagina actually yeah. having to explain that to the one is incredibly difficult so um i can totally understand from a patient point of view that that's a big obstacle um but keep asking because people are getting better um one if you ask a health professional about help with your sex life I would be absolutely horrified if they didn't at least offer you a referral to something else, even if they weren't able to help you with the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think most health professionals would at least say no, but let me let me talk to someone else who might be able to help you with that problem. Um, and then beyond that, I would say look at the, the different charities around that are there to support you so obviously live through this but also um charities um like the eve appeal joe cervical um trust a lot of those charities are a lot better at signposting to specific help even things like um breast cancer care actually recently i looked at one of their leaflets and they actually have how to masturbate in their leaflet with diagrams and everything which i thought Excellent. was great <laughs> yeah so it's definitely improving um that and I wish that every clinician that you met on your cancer journey asked you the question about your sex life yeah I you know I didn't know that there was a nurse that could help with dilation and yeah I was 10 years post treatment and you know that is a long time <laughs> yeah not... I'm really sorry that oh, you no. have to go through that <laughs> it's um but I, I think for other people like even if you are years and years out from treatment you know even if it is kind of because I think what happens is sometimes you know you're tired right like you've been getting through everything else and sometimes we don't even prioritize our own pleasure right so it's really challenging then to kind of you know want to prioritize it in a healthcare setting um but i i did meet my nurse um and um yeah it's incredible like you know it it worked um, <laughs> although some of the things that she recommended yeah kind of getting onto like the the dilators i got the really really hard plastic ones they were yeah. not so appealing um but th- i i have um, seen since that there are fancier soft silicone ones much more fun colors as well um and but the best bit of advice that i got which again was almost like a permission was to think about it as rehab and to get a really good vibrator and the idea of a nurse telling you that like it just (laughs) it changes something in your brain you know as well and so I think there can be a combination of you know for me um when anything was inside me it felt like broken glass 
um, anything. Like I couldn't do anything myself. Like it was just a no go, nada. Um, and the combination of kind of permission, um, a strategy, um, and then thinking of it like rehab that you don't need to be like even super turned on. Like you can just have a vibrator there and think of it as bringing blood flow into that area. And that reconnection with the blood flow in your brain starts to bring you back into your body a bit. And Stuart, have you heard of other people ha kind of having a similar experience with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that reconnecting thing is so smart the way to put it, especially when we think about if people have had surgeries, right? So mm. nerves get cut and sometimes it is that aspect of actually rewiring your body and understanding what it feels like now. Have you had lost sensitivity? Is it sensitive in certain places? And these are really important things to figure out, not only for yourself when you're doing this sort of personal rehab and physiotherapy through sex toys and erogenous signs, but also then when you share it with partners and whether that be long-term or new partners so that you are able to set boundaries and real hard consent lines about what's going to happen so you can relax into the moment. There's nothing worse about going into a sex environment or a sexual inter sort of interaction and then not knowing how far it's going to go. And if you're feeling particularly uncomfortable or you're feeling very sensitive in a certain part of your body, establishing those things early on is crucial. And then in order to establish them, you have to know them yourself. Yeah. So exploring your body is a really good way to sort of bring that back. And it, as you said, it may feel a bit unusual in the beginning. Yeah. I, I definitely felt the same when you move from that almost out of that patient mentality back into a person, which which is a gross oversimplification, but it's that idea of, oh yeah, I can have pleasure again. It's not mm -hmm. all doom and gloom. Like I'm going to live through this. I get to actually carry on. And actually I was having this similar conversation with a patient. No, not a patient actually, just, just someone in my friendship network. And she's a trans woman. And she put it really, really nicely where she said, it's okay to get pleasure from pastes on your body that don't bring you joy. Mm. And, and I thought that was such a really nice way to put it because there are times, especially post-treatment, where you are frustrated at parts of your body and you're yeah. angry about it or or you don't understand why, for example, your treatment path didn't work as well as somebody else's or why you've got these long-term issues. But it's okay to have that and to grieve that and be frustrated by it and work through it. But at the same time, that shouldn't be sort of an all-out block on you seeking pleasure and exploring what your sexual wellness looks like moving forwards. Yeah. And and Stuart, you mentioned someone who was grieving how their sex life looked before in terms of being able yeah. to kind of, you know, not think twice about going to a bathhouse. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I think there is this idea, isn't it, where everybody kind of assumes naively when you get cancer that you just go through it and then you get out the other side. And I think everyone around you assumes that as well. As you know, as patients, it's always, are you good now? Are you fixed? Yeah. Is everything done? You're all good, and, all better. Yeah, and it's exhausting. And it's also really tricky because then cancer does affect you in so many ways and when it affects your sexual wellness or your activity that can be pretty frustrating and then especially you know as a queer person where part of your identity is how you have sex and who with and how you share that part of your body so then moving forwards with that and having to almost re-establish that and I think sometimes the cultures that people engage with sexually can sometimes be a bit tricky so if you are into sex clubs or hookup culture and things like that it's also how do you navigate those spaces after your health right or if even if you have a long-term partner having that conversation how do you almost go back to the start and talk about consent and these things and, and i think it really comes back to that idea of conversations and consent and also 
as Lizzie's touched on as well, is having frank conversations as early as possible with your clinician, just so you can kind of map what these differences will be. And, and if you're struggling to have those conversations with your clinician, see if you can get referred to a psychosexual therapist who's much more comfortable with this stuff, will have a literal toolbox of sex toys, and will talk you through things that might also help you actually get to where you're going to, but just add in a little tool that's going to help you get there. So say, for example, you've had a shortening of the vagina, and so you, you know deep penetration is just not possible it's very painful there's these things called o-nuts that are silicon rings that slip onto the base of either a dildo strap on or penis that can act as a cushion so again you can relax into the moment and it's that idea of sex should be not only fun and positive and reaffirming but you should also be able to relax into it yeah. and feel and feel nourished by it and you should never feel that you have to engage in sex to keep the interest of the people around you oh yeah it should, it should always be on your terms and your comfort especially when you've gone through something that really does change the way that you see your body uh, and I think the other thing that sometimes gets missed is because we focus a lot on the groin right and there's there's also the idea of non-penetrative sex, which is absolutely something to explore, especially if you've had uh, something that's led to stenosis or a vaginectomy or something along these lines. And the other thing as well is, I think Lizzie touched on this, is about your chest as well. So there's some research out there that says, you know, when people go for reconstruction, say, you know, making sure that you're going into it for the right reasons, that you understand that it's for you and your body and it's not for other people to find you of merit or interesting. It's about what makes you feel good. So you can stand confident in your body before you share it with others. Yeah, and there's so many assumptions about that, isn't there? And that's something that we've covered in some of the um, Shine Connect conferences is, you know, it's it can be tricky because, again, there's these assumptions that when you're queer, you don't necessarily fall into. And mm. if the doctors have presumed that you want a reconstructive surgery, when actually... You, that person, you know, might be non-binary, might be trans. And actually it's like, no, I'd like them both to match and I would prefer not to have either of them, you know, um, because that would make me feel more comfortable. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and we've, we've had exactly that thing and we've supported exactly that patient. And we've also met countless patients as well at this point who have had top surgery and had a lump identified during that procedure. So, so, so where these things intersect is quite often, to be honest, you know? Yeah. So, so, so I think when people think about our queer identities, uh, I see it as like a shadow of Section 28 in the UK, but I think a lot of people feel like their identity doesn't matter and it shouldn't be in important discussions and you should just focus on one thing, which is your cancer. But you should absolutely bring your full self into care. Clinicians are always talking about personalised care now. And part of that is really understanding who you are and how it's relevant. And being queer does cross over with cancer at multiple parts, yeah. whether it's your intimacy, your support network, your treatment pathways, so many things. So open conversations, even if they're a bit awkward in the beginning, can really, really be restorative. Yeah. And, you know, as you were talking, I was also thinking about, you know, we've got like the the physical sort of barriers of um, surgery, radiotherapy, um, chemical <laughs> chemotherapy, fatigue, you know, all the and stress, the stress of sex. And, you know, some people like stress makes them horny. Right. So some people actually <laughs> get even more frisky. Um, hats off to it, of, of someone I knew yeah, that was like them, going yeah. out and having 
having threesomes during chemo, I was like, oh, you go. Like, brilliant. Um, you know, we are all so different. Um, there's also a podcast, actually, um, not queer, but um, but talks about, um, yeah, the desire for sex um, called um, Dying for Sex. And, you know, you have all these different barriers. And then, of course, you have hormonal ones. So if you're on hormones, maybe... Um, because you're trans before treatment, that there might be a change to that. There may be, um, you know, I mean, so many, so many different hormone centers, whether that be thyroid, adrenals, you know, your pituitary gland, like so many different things can um, affect. And, and particularly with trans people, having that I mean, everyone suffers with hormone disruption, but that idea of it actually tapping into your identity as well it, you can't go through treatment without acknowledging that. And it feels like something that you would feel more, if, if you understand that your team understands, that makes a really big difference. Absolutely. And I, and I think you've touched on a really good point there as well, because it's another intersection of identity and cancer, right? So this idea of medical transition, taking hormones and how this can be affected. So sometimes the hormones some people will take will be quite similar to the hormones used during cancer during medical treatment. So things like androgen deprivation in prostate, things like that. So there might be some similar sort of things to discuss there, but also again, why I advocate for trans healthcare being kind of central healthcare rather than this sort of fringe healthcare, because mm. it crosses over in a lot of spaces. And also, as you've pointed out, sometimes if someone's diagnosed with cancer, there can be issues with their gender therapy and whether the taking hormones might actually be driving the cancer if it's particular receptor positive. Um, and with that as well, there's, you know, I've uh, supported patients who get very lost in the middle because cancer moves so fast and gender system does not, as we all know. So they get left in the middle with not a lot of information. And um, especially if it means then the cancer wants to pause the medical transition and pause their hormones whilst they figure everything else out. There's also the things about what that does to your body and if it starts to revert and how body fat moves around. And even as you potentially lose weight during treatment, how that can affect someone's gender and lead to gender dysphoria. So there's, there's so many nuances to it that, that I think often get overlooked because without sounding mean, it's just ignorance. I, th I think a lot of people just aren't really either meeting these patients enough or having these conversations enough, or as Lizzie pointed out, just not being taught. There's no core kind of curriculum on this. So yet. it really is in the position. Yeah, exactly. We are pushing <laughs> I promise. Um, and actually that's a point like as a charity, we're creating one that will be an accredited course. So we want to put this information in it and really, I think, celebrate our experiences. You know, like even when I listen to you, Tatum, talk about your experience, it's sobering you know and and there's so many of us out there who feel like we don't really get an opportunity to share it whether that be in the doctor's office or in the support group that's very straight or in all these other spaces and I'm glad that our charity can start to make those but there's so many voices out there that I think we're yet to hear yeah yeah and and I think that's the thing is you know, cancer is already this really divisive, sort of corrosive. And, and, you know, what we were talking about at the beginning, almost like can encourage disassociation from our bodies in order to get through oh, yeah. treatment. So it becomes even more necessary to bring your whole self to the rest of it, whether that be your support, whether that be your medical team, because actually in order to come back together as your whole self and, and you know, 
there needs to be that integration. So we've touched on psychosexual therapy a couple of times. So I want to ask Lizzie, what is it? What do they do? I mean, it sounds, you know, like when you look at it, it's like psychosexual sounds like someone you'd want to avoid, not someone you'd want to <laughs> seek out <laughs> um, if you're into that. Um, so um, what, what, do, what do they do? Um, I'll be honest. I am not 100% certain, as in I have never had psychosexual therapy myself. Um, so when we make the referral, um, it's a group of specialist therapists. You, um, ours are actually at Leeds um, oncology trained psychosexual therapists. So they are psychosexual therapists who specifically have the knowledge of cancer and the impact of cancer on people's sexuality. Um, and it's basically um, a toolkit of therapy techniques that they have that they will help patients um, basically um, recover the sexuality that they want. And that can be physical in terms of different tools, like different sex toys, like um, Stuart mentioned earlier. And so they can have a, a variety of things, like the owner, and they might suggest to people or it might just be certain types of vibrators and um, non-penetrative vibrators. So um, things that can help encourage sensation um, for people with vulvas. Um, as Stuart mentioned earlier, people often have quite negative um, issues with touching and things after surgery, uh, negative connotations with that area after treatment. So actually rediscovering pleasurable sensations in that area again. Um, but also just a look at people's psychological um, yeah, talking therapy around sex and their desire cycle and what type of sex they want. Um, there's something called responsive desire. So um, we always sort of think the way society works is that we should have spontaneous desire. We should just randomly become horny mm -hmm. and have a libido whenever and ideally that will be at least three times a week somehow that's just become the sexual script <laughs> that people expect and actually a lot of evidence shows that responsive desire is more normal for most people so that's when you actually have to sort of cook up the atmosphere and the context for having sex um, and then that often will be like oh actually now I'm horny mm. or now I have a libido um, as opposed to just expecting it to just arrive um, and with them, um, often many cancer patients suffering as a side effect with fatigue and, and a lack of libido and sex drive, that can be a really important thing. I think things, something that many people um, hadn't occurred to them before, that they might need to foster that environment for sex as yeah. well. Yeah, thinking about that is so interesting. Like having a place that you can talk through it, talk through like what you know where does arousal come from what do, you know mm -hmm. and how it might look different now um i mean possibly could even find some things that you never even did before like absolutely yeah um i've i've had the pleasure of interviewing two different psychosexual therapists and um and one of them described reconnecting with your sex like a buffet 
so so it's this idea of just uh, just really just experimenting trying little things you know whether that be sort of metaphorically from head to toe on your body or whether it be from activities you've always wanted to try and it's just this idea of just ex- getting some exploring back in there so it brings in a bit of excitement and it allows you to re-establish what sex looks like you might discover something new you're into if you're fortunate enough to be near a good sex shop you can go in there and actually take a look get to know some textures and and understand what feels good for your body and also always make sure if you are exploring buying toys or lubricants make sure you get high quality things it's worth it to spend that little bit of extra money so the body's safe especially after cancer treatments where the skin might be open and sore you really want to make sure there's no bacteria that's sort of residing on those and make sure you clean toys in between use and and do these things that make sure you can be healthy and happy Um, i haven't thought about that with the cheaper ones but actually that makes a lot of sense doesn't it I do yeah, know no, for I, yes, 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 so it is like the the one that all the doctors recommend. Yeah, um, and um, and because some lubes as well, they can have too much sugar in, which can be bad for your body. Mm. Um, and then also uh, some toys you might buy online from sort of a cheap retailer because you want to save a bit of money. They late the latex will be really low quality or just not correct. And and there's a there's a tool or a test you can do uh i think it's something about boiling latex latex should be fine so you can almost sterilize it that way but yeah. other plastics can't so so there's these things and um and some really good reputable places to look for obviously shush the the female sort of lead queer shop the sex shop which is a good one uh, spectrum boutique in america um, even if you can't access the toys directly they have uh, really wonderful approach about discussing sex very openly which led me to discover things like the laurels panties which are then dams in panty shape so if you're having issues with incontinence it means you can still engage in oral sex without having to worry about that fantastic right and that is amazing i've never heard of that oh i'm so happy i'm learning so much (laughs) and and there's other ways you can be creative as well it's it's the idea of get creative like there's you know it's about understanding what does it for you and it might be clothing it might be environments you might want to try having sex in different places so there's all that kind of stuff but also lizzie and i were talking before about tenga and you can get these sort of textured eggs and normally we think of them as uh, sort of tools for people with penises and masturbation um but you can also flip them inside out and put them over like a Hitachi wand or a Doxy wand so so there's all these different ways you can just ultimately just see it as a playground and and just get that idea of the sexual buffet in your head and the other thing to reflect on with these conversations I've had with psychosexual therapists is there's some of the most frank conversations you'll have. Yeah. So, 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 so if you've been struggling to have these conversations with your other clinicians, don't take that fear into that appointment because that's the appointment where you can just say everything. And even if they don't fully deal with people who have the same kind of sex as you every day, they won't shy away from it. They'll ask more questions and want to know. And then the other final point is in addition to psychosexual therapists, if you feel like actually what you need is relation therapy. So it's this idea of actually I've kind of called my body, not too much has changed, but actually the way I connect with people is very different. Yeah. There's also a sort of relationship therapists you can usually get prescribed to the NHS as well, or you can find privately. And not all psychosexual therapists do both. So it's just making sure who you're going for, make sure that if they're doing the relationship side or the sex side, or if you've got someone that can sort of handle both. Yeah. You know, I went into a sex shop recently and I hadn't been into one for a number of years because reasons, Um, because I I thought that part of my life was done. Um, Oh, my God, there's so much good stuff that isn't as scary as it used to be. Like, I remember it just being all like 
black and spiky and, you know, <laughs> kind of uncomfortable looking, just peering in. Now, it's like, I mean, whoa, silicone has like changed everything. I know I'm really behind the times. I, really, I, I appreciate that. I've been out of the loop for a while, but I'm now back in. Um, yeah. so. And on that, one of the best things that's come around recently is these clitoral stimulators that are pressure, post or air. Like um, they're really wonderful non-penetrative toys, especially if you've had a reduction in sensitivity. Like they are fantastic. Lizzie's nodding a lot, so I'll let Lizzie explain. <laughs> yeah, so are. would this be, have been one of your recommendations for a, for yeah, a toy? Well, I've not actually recommended it to a patient yet, um, but I think it's worth a try, especially if maybe you don't feel like penetration because um, rather than vibration, they some of them have a vibration setting as well. They have a suction end, and you can actually change the size of the nozzle usually on both of them, um, on, on most of them. And then what it does is it applies like air suction to the clitoris. Um, and most people find it a very intense orgasm. So people have been writing rave reviews about it, and people who have never managed to put an orgasm before, um, absolutely loving it. So I think it is probably something worth um trying for people who are wanting to try something a bit different maybe need um maybe especially if you've lost sensation in the clitoris or you feel that you're struggling to orgasm honestly these guys are strong you will <laughs> you will get a lot of sensation from this um, it might be something you want to work up to um if you're feeling a little bit sensitive in the area you might want to start off with like a tenga toy that's just um sort of for the vulval area um, more of a gentle vibration and then work up to it. I mean, they do have loads of settings to be fair. So you could start off with a really low setting on it. Tell me the name of it the and I'm writing it down. So Womanizer is one of the main brands that does it. Okay. Honestly, really, really good. And okay. um, so she sells it in the um, shop that Stuart mentioned in London. So they obviously have their actual shop in London, but the website ships anywhere in the UK. Um, and they're amazing. They're really good as well because um, they're sort of they sort of describe. I think the byline is a, a women's sex shop, but it's very inclusive. They do sell toys for all genders. They have a specific trans non-binary range. Um, they have a specific sort of lesbian section. There's a beginners section. You know, there's very much like it's arranged according to what type of sex you might like or what kind of things you might want to try. So if you're into the spiky things, you can go into the spiky section. And if you're like me, yeah. like quite liking <laughs> the colorful silicone ones. Yeah. Okay. That sounds really good. That sounds yeah. like a, and you know, that's one of the things that I've heard is that I, I kind of going back to that hormonal disruption and the, the different ability to have, um, or to come to orgasm that I've heard that, you know, for people that have maybe never used sex toys before that, you know, some people have, have shied away from that for various reasons, that actually post-treatment, you might need more input than you did before. And that it might be a really good time to explore that. Um, yeah. That, yeah, going back to like where you were, 
Um, you know, because they think some people kind of feel like, oh, I don't need anything but my partner, you know. Um, yeah, but actually, this is maybe a, a, a time, you know, that's totally fine. But if you do find that you're needing your partner to do a lot more work, <laughs> um, that, you know, yeah. um, knowing that there can be changes in that, I think is quite useful. Yeah, and a lot of the toys are really specifically the sort of creativity with your partner. I mean, obviously... There's lots of things out there, like different kinds of strap-ons, different dildos that are very much like to be used with a partner. But even like some of the vibrators, you know, you get like double-ended um, dildos too with vibrators in. There's all sorts. And it's that idea of, like Stuart was mentioning earlier, consent, having that discussion with your partner, sort of um, working out what's going to work for both of you, but sort of... Um, getting your partner to understand what you might need that's different. I think, maybe I'm generalizing, but I do think that people who have queer sex are good at that already because there is no societal script on how to have sex. So you're basically just working it all out anyway. Um, and this is much more um, mutual satisfaction usually aims for than uh, perhaps in the traditional heteronormative sexual script. Um, and people are quite used to mutual masturbation or, you know, watching their partner use a toy or vice versa or doing that together. Um, but obviously it's just that it's a good way to just think anything's possible. I can try anything. There will be something out there. Just have a browse, have a look. Yeah. it's. I, I, I heard someone say recently that a, a sex therapist said, um, if you haven't used it in three years, basically you've lost it. And they were absolutely heartbroken. And yeah, I think that this conversation is definitely like, you know, being queer, we've already got one, <laughs> one leg up in terms of being that bit more creative. And I suppose it is a way of how you communicate with your partner or a new person of like, you know, um, I, you know, I now have a sexual buffet available. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe there is something that I'm now not doing, but I have this other, you know, <laughs> platter, this smorgasbord um, of other things and, you know, kind of thinking of it that way, I suppose it brings the brings that fun back into it doesn't it and brings it back to fun and pleasure and feeling good and you know there is that processing of a loss of what maybe wasn't there but also looking forward to what can be there yeah and I, and I wanted to bring in just one thing we haven't touched on yet which is the idea of shame which kind of still exists around sex a bit you know and and I think Lizzie points out that I think queer sex is usually a little bit better on this because we talk about consent a bit more and I, what you said about mutual masturbation I think is also such a key thing that probably happens more with us and we know there's obviously studies that shows that you know lesbian sex is usually more fruitful let's say than <laughs> heterosexual sex um yes but, um, we don't know uh, when to stop yeah, it, yeah. Well, it can I'll, go on for weeks. From, yeah, apart from yeah, the six-hour sessions with pauses for snacks and 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 six all hours that. I was about to say six. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, but it's this thing, isn't it, where we're speaking of very 
free way and we'd hope that a lot of people in the community would get that and even people who potentially are outside the queer community but listening in and want to kind of understand what they can pull from our experiences to improve their sex lives and i think one of the really strong things is to combat shame so don't feel ashamed about masturbation for one and don't and don't let your partner feel any kind of shame or make you feel ashamed if you decide to bring in a sex toy you know that sometimes there's this kind of weight that the partner has to be everything like Tatum said and that's just not the case and it's never really the case but it might especially not be the case after cancer and it might be that case of okay to explore myself I have to potentially get over the idea of shame from myself and my culture that says masturbation is not okay and really exploring that and really unpicking these things that I think we get sort of told subliminally in the world around us about how sex should look and, and what's appropriate but actually really reviewing and thinking well what feels good for me you know what can I do to explore this either with someone alone or with multiple people as Tatum said it's not about moving back to where you were and the kind of sex you're having it's more about exploring and moving forwards yeah and and doing that free from shame and you know I this is not always easy I mean I didn't get help because I felt shame and you know and I was someone that you know was a you know I I did a a queer talk show you know back in the day and um you know talked openly about sex and you know there's a show floating around the world where I'm holding up a sparkly um silver dildo you know like I was very open I was like open with extra sparkly open dust um we, we, and we I need more of that on tv Tate, to bring it back <laughs> yeah it's on tv in Canada <laughs> <laughs> um, but like so I was there and then I you know it's very easy to shut down into shame mm. and you know, if if this helps anybody, like it it can be a bit of work to get out of there and it's not always easy, but you know, I think you know what helped me was hearing um some quite older men that had, had prostate cancer getting very upset that they couldn't have sex and I was like, I'm in my thirties and I'm not complaining like that. Like you're in your seventies. And then I was like, oh, yeah, there's something wrong with this picture. Right? Like other people allow themselves to get upset if they're not able to do it, you know? Because there is a sense of, oh, I should I should be able to have this. And if that shame has been internalized, there is a sense of like, well, that's it, you know? Yeah. And, and there's the age part there that you brought in, you know? Like this isn't just young people talking about yeah. it. And obviously that's who Shine primarily works for, but it's everybody. And, and if we go back to right at the beginning when Lizzie was talking about these quality of life measures and is it really looked at by healthcare? I've met so many times urologists where they say, you know, a uh, 70-year-old woman with bladder cancer, well, we don't need to ask her about sex. You absolutely do. If my nan's anything to go by, you absolutely do. So, <laughs> so yeah, sex doesn't have an expiry date. I am very happy to hear that. And is that your um, experience, Lizzie, with working with people? Have you known people to have active active sexual lives later than we oh, expect a hundred percent um as she had said i mean i've met older women who just sort of looked with dilated and think oh, i've got something much bigger at home you know it's not <laughs> age is definitely not um something that should stop someone from having that sex life or wanting one and there are plenty of people out there who are having one and want to um and we don't 
discriminate by age and the information we give to people about dilators we just think we'll give it to everyone and they can do with it what they want yeah and just uh, you know I I could talk about this all day like both of you are fascinating <laughs> and I feel like I've learned a lot um and those panties that just kind of blew my mind um right but um I I one of the things that um does come up is is comfort um and I think that's like definitely something like if you're not comfortable doing it like that is something that's quite tangible to tell your team you know, and especially when it comes to um, vaginas, um, you know, and post-cancer, they, you know, again, no one tells you that if you don't have enough estrogen, that things can shrink and atrophy and both internally and externally. And the thinking on topical estrogen has changed. Um, so now even people with hormone cancers are being able to have uh, topical hormone. It's very low dose. It's so low and it doesn't go into the bloodstream, but in that area. And again, it's like, it's that comfort. So if you're not, and it's something that only ever, like it never gets better by itself. Like you need some treatment or like need some, you know, um, what's it called, moisturizer in that area. Um, and so I think those things, yeah, are quite tangible. Like I'm, you know, obviously you want to tell your partner, but also that's something that's quite tangible to tell your medical team and definitely worth getting advice about it because you want to be comfortable, happy, hot, sexy, creative, <laughs> and a full platter, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. And, and what safe you want. as well, you know, safe. like it's the idea of, you need to have good lubrication and whether that come with topical and stuff like that as well. So you're less likely to damage the skin, especially if you're post-treatment and that skin yeah. can be more sensitive and thin as well. So, so it's that idea of sex should always feel good. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about before about consent, but it should be enthusiastic consent. You know, it's that idea of, am I ready? Do I want to do this? And it may feel weird in the beginning and it may be a bit of figuring it out. We're not saying you're going to be gung-ho from the first time. There may be some slight bit of trepidation, but it is that exactly like you said, it's all those factors together. Brilliant. Thank you so much to both of you. Lizzie, did you have one other thing that you wanted to mention? Yeah, just as a consent thing, I think um, it's that thing as well, even if or whatever point you're having sex, if you change your mind and you're like, actually, this doesn't feel good, and actually, I'm totally out of it, and yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. Like, you just say to your partner, "That's it. Like, I, I, I want to have a break, or I don't want to continue." Um, I think again, people sometimes feel like they're obliged yeah. to get started to carry on until that your partner's satisfied, rather than yourself and how you feel. So, yeah, I think yeah, that's really important. Yeah, it's coming up with a communication, isn't it? Because I know for me, like I didn't want someone to worry about me, but I wanted to instill in them, I will. And we, I did tap, <laughs> like I literally tapped out, you know? So it was like, yeah. go for it with a strap on, like as you would proceed as normal. And I will let mm -hmm. you know, and I promise you I will. Yeah, you want that enthusiastic consent, but it's like coming up with a code between the two of you of like, if anything changes and it's no longer comfortable, how do you have that conversation in the midst of it? And there, are, there is some thinking to not use, like not using words can be useful because some people like will take those yeah, words really, really personally. So sometimes it is like a tap and a kiss, you know, um, yeah. 
that it can be a, a kind of more loving signal than needing to stop and have a full, you know, discussion in the middle. Oh, I, I, I yeah. think that's such a wonderful suggestion because the idea of safe words can feel so f- foreign to people. The idea of just saying like banana in the middle of the sex, that's <laughs> supposed to stop it, you know, because well, that's what we see on TV and what we hear is the correct way to do it. But I think you're right. Just making sure that there's good eye contact, touch, clear signals and communication throughout mm-hmm. is is that is that really good way forwards. Yeah. Thank you so much to both of you. Um, I'm sure people are going to have some questions. Um, You know, you can, um, if you want to actually, Stuart, if you can say where to find you. Yeah, sure. So, um, so Live Through This is my charity. You can find us on socials at LTT Cancer, and that's where you can get in touch with us too. We do peer support monthly online for patients, and we're just launching it for carers and partners as well. Um, we talk about all these things very openly in a mixed gender, mixed tumor group. Um, and if ever you need to sort of pick my brains personally, you can get at me through the contact form on the website. Wonderful. And thank you, Lizzie. And I think all your patients are really lucky to have you as their radiographer. Hopefully. I'm trying my best. <laughs> We've got a good team, at least. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you to Lizzie and Stuart, and thank you to Radio Facilities for supporting our podcast. We love them. And thank you to all of you for listening. If you like us, please subscribe. And the reason for this is that it gets more eyes on us, and more eyes brings in more people who realize that actually they could do with talking to someone and could do with some more help so hit like hit subscribe follow it really does make a difference thank you so much and we'll see you soon bye